Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale until Monday only, and you'll not only get your first 12 weeks in print and online for £12, but you'll also get a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey absolutely free. To claim this offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash whiskey. This offer is only available within the UK and you must be 18 or older to claim it. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by the journalist, novelist and critic Celia Walden. Celia's new book, The Square, is out now. Celia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Celia, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's about a five-hour answer. But uh, (laughs) I'm trying to, you know, weirdly enough, and I was talking about this with my best friend the other day, lentils are my favourite, my earliest memory just eating huge plates of lentils because I came from a, my parents were weirdly, what's the word? I suppose quite puritanical about food. So everything, we never had biscuits, we never had fizzy drinks or sweets or anything like that. But when I came home from school, I would have a massive bowl of lentils, which sounds like something out of kind of uh, Oliver Twist or, but I actually really like lentils. And since then, it's funny, isn't it? The associations that you make with sort of comfort and since then, if ever I am having a night in, instead of having a kind of beans on toast or whatever it is that people go to, I do just think a steaming bowl of lentils is there's something uniquely comforting about that. And, and you were born in Paris and then raised in London. What, what, was there a kind of French and also British theme to the food that you were eating? Yeah, I suppose all the food my parents made has always been very French, but minus the rich sauces. And, you know, at Christmas, for example, we always used to have the, the massive meal on the night before on, on Christmas Eve, which I think people just don't really do here, do they? But uh, sadly, I didn't take on any of that because I would love to be able to make great French food. And I keep thinking I should do some kind of cookery class. But then when does anyone do any of this stuff? And it's interesting you mentioned the, the Christmas Eve meal. Were, were meal times themselves a big deal when you were growing up with your family? I think we always sat down, definitely. And that I do, as a mum now, I do feel bad about because I think sort of Piers and I do way too many nights sort of in front of the telly with food. I mean, we do sit down as a family a lot. But, you know, when I was growing up, that would never happen. I mean, we didn't have an idiot box anyway. So <laughs> so that was off the table. But, yeah, we would always sit down. And uh, my dad was an MP, actually, from almost all my childhood. So he was often not there. But me, my mum and my two brothers would all sit down. And what about school food? What are your memories of, of school food? Well... I just remember banana custard and I don't really remember much else that was going on. But I'm very jealous of my daughter who's at the French Lycée and she comes home with this description of what she had for lunch. And I feel like saying, this, you realise this is just not normal. Nowhere. <laughs> I don't know any school in the country apart from the French Lycée that bakes its own French bread every day, fresh, so that it's still hot. I mean, can you imagine? And you know, they sort of have about five different options of whatever it is that they're making that day the pizzas are sort of home fired in an oven and it's I do love that about the French that they even at school they've decided that it's just crucially important that everyone enjoy their lunch and do you remember enjoying food yourself when you were growing up were you were you an adventurous eater or a fuss eater 
Uh, no, I was never a fuss eater, but I do remember going to friends' houses and raiding their cupboard for things like crisps and really sugary cereals that we never had. And again, going back, it's funny, the sort of the, the things that you can't let go of, the things that you weren't allowed to have. So things like Harvest Crunch that I remember I always used to hanker after because it's just so ridiculously nice. And my mum would never buy anything like that. But the first thing I would do whenever I went to my best friend's house was have a massive, massive bowl of cereal. And I suppose chocolate, although not as much as many. When women talk about obsession with chocolate, I think that's become a little bit overblown, hasn't it? I don't, I'm not convinced all women are obsessed with chocolate. And... You then went to Cambridge where you studied French and Italian. What are your memories of food at that stage in life? Were you cooking anything or were you mainly eating in in hall? Well, weirdly, at Cambridge, uh, I think that might have been the most exciting moment of my culinary life. Maybe it was just boredom or something or just or not not boredom, but sort of having time and being with friends. and And I remember going to all sorts of I discovered goat's cheese salad, which I'd sort of for some reason never focused on before and and how you could get toast the pine nuts and all the stuff that I'd never had any interest in. I suddenly started doing and I don't think I've ever eaten as well since university, which is weird because it's usually the complete opposite, isn't it? But I didn't live off pot noodles at all. I think it was that I had actually made friends with someone who was a very good cook, which made a big difference. After university... Your first job in journalism was writing The Londoner's Diary, the, the Evening Standards gossip column. Did food play any role in that or was it, was it, was it more liquid-based? Well, famously, throughout my entire career as, as a gossip columnist, and I'm sure every gossip columnist, there would be, so there'd be nothing in my fridge at all, apart from thousands of those little miniatures that they give you in goodie bags at the end of parties. And occasionally really sort of random extravagant things that you actually didn't really want to eat, like sort of, I don't know, Earl Grey infused truffles or something, but two of them in a very small box and there'll be nothing else in the entire fridge. So that actually was probably the worst culinary moment of my life. Because also by the time you got home after those parties and being told to go away by various prominent figures, you just didn't really feel like eating much. I would tend to just go straight to bed. And when you're writing, Celia, whether it be a novel or, or a column for the, the newspaper do you have kind of go-to foods or drinks that you like to have by your side well at the moment I'm really into kombucha because I think if you can find one that's not too sweet you can sort of persuade yourself that it's also good for you which it technically is and I drink just way too much coffee I drink about five cups a day which people keep telling me is really bad for you but then there's no sign of it doing anything bad so I, and I always sleep And I think, you know, I just don't do anything naughty in life anymore. I'm married, so I can't flirt with men. I don't smoke. I don't eat huge chunks of cake. And I just think if you took away my coffee, I really, I just don't know if there would be any point in carrying on. (laughs) We won't take away your coffee then. (laughs) (laughs) After a career as a gossip columnist, do, do you feel allergic to going out now? Or do you enjoy going to restaurants and bars and eating out now? No, I actually think it has done some weird um I mean I get triggered now to speak millennials I do actually get triggered by being at parties and I suddenly want to leave in quite a phobic way and I think it's done something I I mean maybe one day it will go away but certainly immediately after I stopped I couldn't go to any of those sort of um you know smile and be polite things just for a long time 
And even now, I really do struggle with it because I think it's just killed the excitement of it. And you divide your time between London and LA. Can you tell us a bit about your sort of impression of the food scene in London and, and how it compares to LA and, and sort of the places that you like to go in, in both places? Well, I, I suppose LA is not famous for its good food and you wouldn't expect it to be in a way because it's a desert, but it has got better lately. And there are lots of, in terms of atmosphere, the restaurants are great. And of course, you're you know sitting there sort of amongst palm trees on some beautiful patio. So all that part of it is lovely, but the food itself... I never find it really outstanding in the way that you do, for example, in New York, where you can just this endless place where you could have the best steak of your life. Or So I actually think London, in terms of the quality of food, that, that food in London is way better. And you also can't get a decent curry in L.A. for love nor money, which when I was pregnant, I found really upsetting because they, they worry. <laughs> they worry about things being too spicy. So it's all sort of very sickly sweet instead. Where's your go-to place for a curry in London? Well, Deliveroo, I find, is uh, quite a... <laughs> find, um, Piers is the real curry fanatic, but our local curry house closed down, which is really upsetting. So we're trying out various new ones, and I'm trying to push him in the direction of... There's that place, Holy Cow, that's meant to be quite healthy. But if I say that to Piers, then he'll immediately take against it. Did you find that having a child changed your ways of eating or your attitudes to eating or cooking? I think it definitely makes you more civilised because you have to be. And I'm aware, especially with a girl, I mean, it's so exhausting, isn't it? Because you're always trying to think ahead about setting good examples. And I, I'm always wary of that thing. It's not what you say, it's what you do. And so for ages, it doesn't really matter when they're tiny. But now that she's she's 11, and I really want her to remember and and think it's normal to sit down and finish your meal and not do anything else at the table, but really concentrate on eating. And I want to get her also involved in preparing it because I think that that's a huge part of the enjoyment. It's also something nice you can do together. So in that way, I've changed a lot because up until I had a child, I didn't really care. And do you and Piers cook together? You've mentioned obviously the curries and the occasional meals, watching the TV. What, what do you ever cook together and, and do that sort of thing? <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I've <laughs> never ever done that. No, the big mistake I made was I went out with a series of chefs before Piers, and they were obviously all absolutely amazing. So I went out. Do you remember Jean-Christophe Novelli, the French chef? And he would, you, you would get home after a night at the pub with him and he would whip something up and you would be incapable of speech. He would be telling you something. But I can't even talk to you because this is the nicest thing I've ever tasted in my life. And you've just made it with whatever was left in your fridge. And then after him, there were various other chefs. And so, to be honest, when I started going out with Piers, it was a slightly, there was an awkward moment where I realised he was never going to make anything of that quality. <laughs> and also, <laughs> I certainly wasn't going to. So there's just been a lot of Charlie Bingham and uh, Deliveroo, really. Does he have a signature dish or is cooking just, just not, his, not his bag? He has uh, a signature dish, which also happens to be his only dish, um, and it's called Spaghetti Morganese. Um, <laughs> you'll see what he's done there. And uh, it's just spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> With a twist or just, <laughs> just classic spaghetti well, bolognese? Well, it depends what you think a twist is. I do like, it's actually very, very good. But the main problem is the state of the kitchen when he's finished. So um, it reaches a point where you'd rather he doesn't make spaghetti morganese because of the 
absolute bombsite that you're greeted by by the time he's finished. And do you have a signature dish? I used to make stuffed marrow a lot because my mum used to make it when I was a child, which is really nice. But then you can't find marrows anywhere. I don't know what's happened to them. Have they been cancelled? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> is a marrow just a big courgette? Well, they would take, <laughs> they would be offended <laughs> by that. But uh, no, I mean, they, but they, you used to see them, didn't you? Like really huge. I mean, I say that like you're my age or not, but... But, you know, they and, and it was actually really useful because it was more like a piece of sort of crockery than anything else, because you just carve out the middle bit and then fill it with mints and then grate cheese over the top and a little bit of bechamel sauce, too, to make it nice and kind of. And it was absolutely delicious. But but, yeah, you can't find them. So occasionally I do that, but with aubergine instead. And do you enjoy hosting? Do you like having people around for supper? No, we never really do it. We used to. I feel awful that we've stopped doing it. But I think, well, it's difficult because Piers is on air basically every night. So that definitely has an impact. I think at the weekend, it just always feels like a big commitment to start getting... I mean, it's fine if you have you know, two or three people over. But we've, we've pretty much stopped doing big dinner parties, which is a shame. Zelia, tell us about your new novel. Are there any kind of food party related themes in there what's going on in in the square (laughs) well it's about a group of Londoners who live in one of those beautiful squares it's in West London and uh, so there's a lot of sort of picnics it's over over a hot summer so there's a lot of picnics in the square and scotch eggs um, and rosé and um, all that sort of slightly I suppose Notting Hilly style picnic food that they have but no, there's, apart from that, there's not an awful lot of cooking, it has to be said. But I think everyone's too busy murdering each other. And what do you turn to after a long day of writing, either a food or drink? What is going to switch you off from the writing at that stage? I think uh, I always have a yearning for cheese at the sort of in late afternoon, weirdly. Um, and it must be a salt thing. But I remember I, I never liked cheese until covid and I remember seeing a small piece in the New York Times about how everyone was obsessed with. Do you remember everyone was eating cheese? And it was a, and some doctor had said that there was a reason for it, which was that we are created in a way that means that we yearn for salt when we are anxious because of the feeling that food might run out or that. And so he said that that was why you know the whole world was suddenly becoming obsessed with cheese during lockdown, which I thought was really interesting. Anyway, since then, I have got really into just very, very tart cheddar. And I like a bit of that on a Rivita with maybe a bit of Branston pickle on the side. It may well be that cheese is your answer to this question, but we normally like to ask as our penultimate question, what is your comfort food? Well, I suppose I would probably go back to lentils. But then the, the only other thing, which again is a childhood thing, and I've noticed for men, comfort food is always some variant on rice pudding. But So this is a sort of savoury version of that, I suppose, is... Um, you know, there's tiny, tiny little bits of pasta that you can get in uh, the alphabeti, they're called. That in chicken broth, which I give my daughter a lot when she's ill, I think is just the ultimate comfort food if ever you need it. And um, what about, finally, your, your desert island meal? Not as in what you could scrap together on a desert island, but your ultimate, final, no-holds-barred meal. What, what would you want from that? I suppose my I mean in the end I don't think you can beat a really amazing Italian pizza it's quite hard to think of anything that could be better than that we have a place down the road called Il Portico which is uh, uh, I think it's one of the oldest Italian restaurants in London actually 
it does these pizzas that are, you know, where the surface is kind of molten. It's just, it's not even, it, it would almost slide off if you put it on one side. And they are absolutely delicious, very, very thin crust. Uh, so I think a margarita with olives and ham would be pretty amazing. And that with a bottle of Chateau Margot. And would you need something sweet to a bowl of Harvest Crunch? Or... Harvest Crunch. Yes, or <laughs> either Harvest Crunch or Scotch pancakes with melted butter. Yes. <laughs> well, Celia, thank you for joining us on Table Talk. And Celia's new novel, The Square, is available now. 